Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, everybody. I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. Hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, this morning, I went to Starbucks and got like one of their, I love their spinach feta wrap. I don't know why. I'm addicted. So I got two so that I have one for tomorrow. But I have not been to Starbucks since we went on lockdown. So like March, I don't know, 12, something like that. I never been so excited my whole entire life. And I got my iced soy latte, but I poured it into a cup just so I wasn't drinking out of the cup that they offered. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you're supposed to do, but I don't want to get sick and I don't want to get bail sick. And so Sean and I have just been like hunkered down doing our thing. Um, anyway, so that was a great way to start my day and I was super excited. Um, how are you doing? How are things? It's just a weird time and it's still strange and people are trying to rush out to get things back to normal. And I understand like people have to work and I know probably many of you are feeling the stress from that, um, but I'm just scared. <laughs> so just uncomfortable because I'm like, oh, I hope this is okay. I hope we're okay. Oh, anyway, it's a lot. Everything's a lot. Um, but we're back and I get all of my questions for many of you who I know you've asked and you've wondered and you leave it in the comments below one of the podcasts, I get my questions for the podcast on uh, this YouTube channel that you're, if you're watching this, it's on the channel that you're watching in the community tab. However, if you're just listening to this, it is under Sean and I's podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash opinions that don't matter. Um, and then I get into the community tab and then I'll let you know, like, hey, I'm taking questions for AKA this week. Um, I usually ask on Monday or Tuesday for those questions, so make sure you have your notifications turned on. Um, I do have one question that I received, uh, Sean received in the email, that I will not be taking questions from that email anymore. Um, this is just one because I think somebody maybe just didn't understand. Um, yeah, without further ado, I pulled how many how many questions we have? We have twelve questions today, so a little more than normal. I'll try not to ramble too much, um, but yeah, let's just get into it. Um, and this is the last of my soy latte, and I'm sad. But I'm just thankful that I could go to Starbucks. Am I right? It's the small things, you guys. The small things. Okay. Question number one. Hi, Katie. I was wondering how to cope with grieving the loss of therapy and not seeing one's therapist again. Assuming that one wouldn't be able to go back to therapy at least for a while. 
There are times where a client might have to terminate for reasons outside of their control. I've struggled with the anxiety of having to terminate, and thankfully, I've been able to continue therapy instead of ending it. But at the time, I was certain I wouldn't be able to cope with the grief or loss of therapy and with my therapist herself, since the therapeutic relationship can be a close and unique one. Thanks, and I love your videos and podcasts. Of course, yay. Um, it's interesting. The relationship in therapy is very unique, and it is very intimate and close in a way that we don't experience in other parts of our life. And unless we're in another therapeutic relationship, we won't have that again. It's just a very unique thing. And and that is what makes it amazing. It makes it so healing or beneficial and all that good stuff. Um, and so part of it, I have a video, I think it's called the four must do's when ending therapy or something like that. I would encourage you to watch that video because the main thing that I thought when I read this question was that we have to take the time and the space to appreciate all we've done in therapy. And I know that you're like, Katie, I'm talking about like, how do I grieve the loss? But part of it is recognizing how far we've come in therapy and understanding that we don't need it anymore and feeling proud about that and like coming out with a sense of confidence. And I know that that takes time. And that's why usually if termination can happen over, let's say a month or two, um, that's, I know that's ideal, but that's like what I hope. Like if my patients are doing really well, then I'm like, I don't think you need to come in anymore. Um, I usually do at least like four sessions, sometimes eight, depending on what they need. So that would be like a month or two um, where we talk about all the things they've worked on, homework that they should continue to do on the regular basis and all that good stuff. I'll even go back to my notes from their first session and tell them what I wrote and talk about it and like, remember that? And it can be such an eye-opening experience to be like, wow, I've come so far. And so I say all of that just to, so that we all know that you can recognize all the, you know, progress you've made in therapy and why you don't need it anymore and take the time to appreciate and recognize that and then move on. Um, but grief, like any grief is grief, no matter what type of relationship it was or what happened, it still feels the same. So for feeling this grief and loss of therapy, um, I think that a lot of it in our own work is recognizing all the good that we did with them, things that, you know, they helped us with, and then what we're sad about, what we miss, and see if there are ways that we can incorporate that into our life. Because the thing about grieving a therapeutic relationship is that hopefully it comes from a good place. Like I know this person's saying that sometimes, you know, you have to terminate for like for reasons outside of their control, like financially, um, or maybe they have to move because of a job relocation. There can be a lot of different things. And I think most therapists, um, just as a side note, would allow you to potentially email every so often, not like every week or every day or anything like that. But every couple of months, just doing a check-in, I allow my patients who've like graduated, quote unquote, graduated therapy, um, to keep in touch on a, you know, infrequent basis. Um, you know, it. I know it's tricky, like ethically and boundary wise, but I like the check-ins. I like to hear how people are doing. Um, doesn't mean I'll always reply right away. I always tell them like, hey, just because you send it doesn't mean I'm like on the tap. Um, so anyway, there's a couple of things we can do. But I think when it comes to grief and loss and therapy, we have to take, I know you guys are going to hate this answer, but it's like we have to journal about it a little bit and talk it out either with our new, if we're moving on to a new therapist, I encourage you to utilize that first month or two of those sessions with a new therapist to process the loss of the old therapist. Okay. Um, I think that that's really beneficial. 
gives you a safe space to talk to somebody who understands what therapeutic relationship is. It's not just like a friend who's like, yeah, that would be hard. I mean, I don't, you know, and they haven't been in therapy. They don't understand. They don't get it. Um, I think that that, that could be a great place to, to process it. So if you're moving on, do that. Um, but otherwise journal on your own, consider what was so valuable about that relationship for you. What was it that made it feel so good? Um, are there other relationships in our lives that mimic some of the things that, that we had in therapy? Are those people we can like, you know, grow our relationship with so that we are in a way getting somewhat of the same thing out of that relationship? Does that make sense? Like we're getting our needs met throughout uh, through other relationships as well. Like consider that, but take the time to really journal about what was so valuable about it, what was important, what progress we made. I want to keep going back to that because I want I want all of you to not just be upset or sad about the loss, but I want you to recognize like how valuable it was for you and why and all the work that you did because therapy is fucking hard. It's not easy. People act like, oh, they'll, you'll just go in and they'll fix you. That's, we all know that is not how it works. And trust me, that'd be awesome if I could do that, but that is just not the way life is. Um, so journaling about it, venting about it, either to friends and family or to your new therapist, giving yourself time to process it. Um, maybe things that you're sad they won't be a part of and then just letting yourself feel it the more we stuff it down the more we like mm, swallow how we feel swallow what's going on uh try not to experience it the worse we will feel and the, uh, also this it'll come out in the strangest of ways at the strangest of times and so we don't want to randomly shout at a stranger on the street we'd rather cry at home for a couple of days and and think about it and journal about it and um feel it that's a little bit safer and more and more responsible, right? That's actually us being more adult, using our wise mind, allowing ourselves to to acknowledge the feelings, let them come through us and know that we don't have to hold on to them. They don't necessarily um, you know, define who we are, the situation that we're in, that we can just allow them to be there. We can be sad. And so I want you to know that it's okay to feel sad that therapy is ending. Um, but you got to talk about it. And just with this question, it sounds almost like... Um, you struggle with the anxiety of having to terminate and thankfully I'll be able to continue therapy instead of ending it. But the time of, okay. So it's like, you're okay now and you're in therapy and I would talk to your therapist about this. Sorry, I'm yawning. It's me, not you. Um, it's because I'm talking so much, but I would bring it up with your therapist about, you know, talk about how sad you were and how worried and the anxiety around it and just allow, uh, I know that your therapist will be curious and ask a lot of questions and that will allow you to better understand your process and what was so upsetting. Utilize that time. It's really important. Uh, ending therapy properly and understanding grieving the loss is just as important as starting therapy. Um, I know that sounds weird, but it's like it's it's a, a momentous occasion. It's a thing that we're doing to better ourselves. And when we've, we're finished with therapy and finished, you know, with that process, it's important that we recognize all of the, you know, work and blah, 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 and how we feel about not having therapy. Um, yeah. Am I answering your question? I hope that I am. <laughs> I feel like we have to let ourselves feel it, talk it out with people who understand since you're still in therapy, I would talk it out there. Um, and then digging into, because I'm very curious when you say you struggle with the anxiety of having to terminate, I'm very curious, like, what was it that made it scary to not have therapy? Like, that would be how I would approach it with my client. I'd be like, understandably, you know, like, it'd be sad if we had to end therapy before you were ready. Um, however, I'm curious that, you know, like, then I'd be like, it sounded like you were really anxious about it. What were you worried would happen if, you know, we couldn't continue seeing each other? I'd go down that rabbit hole a little bit. Like, what what's the worst thing that could happen? What, what did you think could 
could take place that could be so upsetting and just be curious. And that's kind of like the journaling, just being curious about it. Um, letting yourself feel it. If you want to cry, it's okay. If you want to, um, you know, feel angry, that's okay too. Um, however you feel is okay. But yeah, I hope that that's helpful. I know it's hard. Um, but I have that video again, the four must do things, uh, or four things. I forget what it's called. Someone ending therapy. If you just put Katie Morton ending therapy, it should pop up. Okay. Question number two, and I'm going to have some more coffee because coffee's life. <laughs> okay. This is the one that came through email. Like I said, I'm not taking anything through email anymore. <clears throat> so just because that keeps Sean and I's podcast separate um, because that's where we get our funny questions for opinions that don't matter. Okay. This question says, hi, Katie. I moved into college seven weeks ago and have been full on relapsing into anorexia since then. I've been telling my therapist about it, but I don't want to go back to recovery at the moment and feel like I'm just going to burden her and disappoint her if I keep telling her I don't eat. My eating disorder also tells me to stop telling her about my relapse altogether and pretend I'm fine. No shit, Sherlock. Eating disorders are lying pieces of garbage. I feel incredibly lost. I'm so grateful to have someone to talk to about it, but should I even do that? I'm scared, Katie. I don't know what to do. Love from Germany. Okay. Eating disorders will always lie to us. They'll always tell us that we're not sick enough or that we shouldn't talk to people about it. Eating disorders thrive in the secret. I've talked about this in the past. I'm actually working on another video about eating disorders because a lot of you told me you're wanting more content around that, um, especially in light of like quarantine and stuff like that. Um, but eating disorders, they thrive in the dark. They thrive in the secret. They, they don't thrive when we call them out and we acknowledge what they are and what's happening. And I know that it goes against every like aota of who you are and what, what your thought process is because your eating disorder is taking over like 99.9% of that right now. But we're going to have to push back and you're going to have to say, tell your therapist. I'm just giving it to you straight. It's a little tough love. Tell your therapist now, okay? I know you say don't want to, going to burden and disappoint. No, that's not how therapy works. I know that a lot of us think that, oh, you know, if I tell my therapist about my abuse, they're just going to feel too sorry for me and I just can't have them looking at me that way and I just don't want to burden someone with all of the shit that I have to deal with. Excuse me, what? What's therapy for then? Riddle me this. Because that's where that therapy is all about the unburdening. It's all about the the dumping of stuff. Like I can't tell you how many times I feel like I just go into therapy and have like verbal diarrhea. I'm like, oh my God, I've been feeling so stressed. And then like I was talking to my grandma and I'm worried she's not staying at home. And blah, blah, blah. Like I just go off on it like blah, 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 until I'm done. And then, my, then I'm usually crying and my therapist is like, Okay, sounds like a lot. <laughs> She's just trying to contain it and hold it for me as I'm like, feel like I'm falling apart, right? So you're not going to burden or disappoint your therapist. There's no judgment in therapy. There's only unconditional positive regard, which means that we support, we reflect, we hold the space for you. We validate how you feel. We listen without judgment. All of that has to take place. And so Yes, eating disorder recovery is hard and we don't always have to want to get better. But the thing that I want you to think about is do you actually like it when you're super, super sick and stuck in your eating disorder? Does it feel good? Is it enjoyable? Do we feel joy, freedom? The answer is always no. Eating disorders snuff out any joy, any freedom. All they do is obsess and count and uh, urge and manipulate. Eating disorders are fuckers, you guys. They're the worst. And so tell your therapist about it. Talk to her. Be honest about where you're at as much as you can. If you have to write things down and bring them in and just give her, give it to her, like just give her a piece of paper with uh, information, do that. Because 
<clears throat> otherwise the Eden sort of just gets stronger and stronger. And before we know it, we don't even know, you know, any other way of being. I've heard from a lot of you, we struggle to find out which voice is even ours. It all feels like the eating disorder because it, it does like swallow us whole. So speak up, tell your therapist. There's nothing, it's, it's very normal, you guys. I want you all to know that treatment, like there's a reason I say it's a process, not perfection. That There's a reason, sorry, I'm scooting my chair in. Um, there's a reason that that is something that I've said for years and years is because it's true. Life and progress and therapy, especially eating disorder recovery, is not perfect. We don't go like A to B to C to D to D. I feel so much better. We go like if you if you're just listening, I'm making like the windiest path ever backwards, forwards, all around, because that's really what happens. That's the truth in life. We take one step forward, sometimes seven steps back, but we just have to keep trying to move forward. Eating disorders recovery is like this. Like you moved to college seven weeks ago. That's a huge disruption of your regular schedule. Moving is on the top 10 most stressful things in life, along with like divorce, uh, death of a close loved one, um, having a child. There's things that throw wrenches in our life. And stress doesn't mean that it's bad. Going to college is exciting. Congratulations. I'm very excited for you. However, it's stressful. It's a change. We might not know anybody at college yet. We might not like our roommate. She might steal our soy milk or some shit. We don't know, right? Things are crazy. Life is crazy. But the more we talk about our problems really with our therapist, the more they can help us. Your therapist needs to know that you're in a full-blown relapse. I would tell them, I would like read this question that you sent to me to them. This is what I sent to Katie because I just needed some insight because I was worried about this. And I know your therapist is going to feel for you, going to listen, not judge, and try to figure out what our next steps are. We don't have to necessarily want to be in recovery. Like you said, I don't know if I want to go back to recovery at the moment. Okay. Well, what do we do then? And I, I would challenge that as, as a therapist. I would challenge you to consider why that is and what it is your, your eating disorder is giving you that makes it that comfort that you're going to because we're stressed and we use eating disorder behaviors. Something changes in our life, we use eating disorder behaviors. I don't feel comfortable, eating disorder. And it's this like, it's our one coping skill. That muscle is very strong for like that connection is very strong between stressful event or upsetting event and eating disorder behaviors. And I want you to consider those triggers and I want you to try some other things. You know, I know logically, you know of other things you could do. I want you to challenge yourself to do those other things. This could be anything from... um you journaling, talking to your therapist, coloring, uh, petting an animal, cleaning a room, going for a walk, a walk where you can still talk and you're fine. I don't want any crazy exercise happening. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of what else. Reading a book, uh, doing Sudoku. I don't know. There's a zillion things, a zillion things we could do. Um, just think of some other coping skills, other distractions. I have impulse logs or other like process um, distractions we can do. I have that whole video, Katie, uh, on my channel to search, search Katie Morton 25 coping skills. It'll pop up. Um, go through that. Find some other things because your eating disorder is, is just lying to you. Don't listen to it. It will only make your life harder and make you feel worse. And trust me, there's never good enough. I can't tell you how many times I've heard from viewers and patients alike where they're like, well, I just didn't think that I was sick enough to get help. Like I just needed to lose more weight Trust me when I tell you, you'll never lose enough weight for your eating disorder. It'll always be more. It's never enough. It's never happy. It's only negative. It's only judgmental. And it only makes us feel worse. So don't listen to it. It's a piece of garbage. Just trust me. Okay. 
You got this though. It gets better. I promise. Recovery is possible. We just need the right kind of support. So don't get wrapped up thinking that, that it's just never going to get better. And we're always going to be like this. Cause that's not true. Okay. Okay. More coffee. We're good. Keeping myself charged. Question number three. Hey, Katie, what would you say to your patients or clients if they came in and told you that they felt like they were wasting your time? That happens all the time, by the way. Um, lately, I feel like I'm wasting my therapist time because sometimes we just end up talking for a little while. And while I talk about things, I just feel like I'm taking her time away from someone who could need it more. Thanks in advance and love your videos. Okay, first of all, you're never wasting a therapist's time. You technically, it's, it's what we do for a living, right? Not only do we get paid, I, not that I even like to mention that, but that's important to know. We get paid for our time. So you're not wasting it. Also, judgment always ruins things, right? One of my favorite quotes is, comparison is the thief of joy. You're comparing your heartache and your upset and your difficulties to someone that we don't even know. You're making up a person, someone who could need it more. What does that mean if someone needs it more? Does that mean that you, therefore, aren't entitled to need it? because someone else needs it more? That's not how this works. We all are entitled to receive proper care. I want you to hear that. We all are entitled to it. I know that access is an issue and there's all sorts of like systemic problems within our system of how we're, how we get help and how we pay for help and receive help and, and access all that stuff. I know that that is a problem. However, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you not feeling worthy or like you're wasting your therapist's time because someone could need it more. You got to work on that self-talk. That would be, this would honestly be something I would encourage you to bring up in therapy because my gut is like, I would be interested, like my guess, okay? I have a hypothesis. My hypothesis from the person who asked this question is that you probably, I'm making assumptions, Okay. You probably hate to be in people's way. You struggle to take up space. You don't think you have the right to take up space or be heard. You want to make yourself as small and as minimum or minimal, I guess, minimize yourself as much as possible. You uh, always put yourself last. Don't have much self-confidence, probably have anxiety or depressive symptoms um, yeah, that would be my hypothesis. So I, as, as a therapist, then I'd have some questions to ask you. I'd be very curious. I'd be curious about, um, what would it mean if you were wasting my time? What does that mean? Wasting my time. What if someone didn't need it more and was coming in, but then someone needed it more than them? Should they not get help either? Is this just specific to you? Or are these rules and judgments that you put on other people too? I'm just very curious because it sounds like a lack of self-confidence, which could lead to depress, you know, depression or anxiety, things like that. Um, and then just that the curse of like judgment and comparison, it's just ruining. It's taking away your ability to be in therapy and get the help that you need. There's always going to be people better off or worse off or better off. There's always going to be that. That's how life is. But that doesn't make us less worthy of receiving help or care, especially when we're putting in the legwork, right? We've reached out, we've figured out how to afford it. We figure out how to get there or how to make the time for it. Um, we're doing the work in therapy, even though it's really, really hard and challenging. We're doing all that stuff. Just showing up for therapy makes you worthy of it. There are tons of therapists, at least in my community, there are tons. And now that things are online, there's so many therapists available online. Um, 
trust me, you're not taking it away from anybody else. Um, you are worthy of it. And there's always going to be someone that needs it more. Check in on that self-talk. Check in on how, you know, the conversation you're having with yourself. And like I said, I'd be very curious if any of those things I said were true. And then how can we fight back against that? What can we do to, to allow ourselves to take up space, to be okay with speaking up and being heard and being seen? What are some challenges that we can put in place to do that? Like standing up for ourselves in conversation when someone tries to talk over us. There are things that, you know, we have to practice. I struggle with that too. I try my best um, to to take up space and be okay with it. I like, I'm grateful that I don't have to go to grocery stores right now because we are very fortunate we can get groceries delivered and with the coronavirus, Sean and I just do not take that risk. But I hate grocery stores because I'm in a city, so it's it's very tight aisles and you always feel like you're in someone's way. And it's super difficult. My therapist is like, you just need to stand your ground and just look at what you're looking. Everybody's there to do. But I have a, I have a really tough time with it. Oh, excuse me. Sorry, sorry. Even though I haven't done anything, they entered into the aisle that I was already in and wanted to potentially look at the same thing I was looking. You know, it's crazy making. So I challenge you to hold your ground in life in some ways. Maybe it's in conversations. Maybe it's at the grocery store. Whatever you can do where you don't say sorry and you don't move. You just say hi. You acknowledge someone having a good day. We're all doing the fucking same thing. And it doesn't mean that, you know, they have, they're more worthy of getting it or need that thing more or are more, I don't even know, like have more right to take up space. That's not true. We all have equal rights to take up space, to be seen and heard. And I just encourage you to, to own that, hold on to it. Um, it's hard, but you've got it. Okay. And you're never wasting your therapist time. It's funny, the only thing I've told my patients sometimes, if patients who, because it's very, very common, you guys, for people to lie to me as a therapist. Um, I'm sure all of you have lied to your therapist, whether it's just downplaying, lying by omission. You know, we're not telling them all the, th- all the truth all the time. And my clients, when, I, when, they, when they lie to me, or when I catch them in a lie, or when I ask about something and they're uncomfortable with it, and I'm like, it's up to you if you want to waste your time. It's really them wasting their time. Cause I'm here. I'm going to be here anyway. You're paying me for my time. I'm doing my part in our, the relationship of holding up my end of the bargain. But if you aren't interested and you don't want, you know, you're just not making the most of it. So I've never thought of it about them wasting my time. It's more about them wasting their own time when you're like lying or not doing the homework or not putting in the work, you know, then you're not getting as much out of it as you could. So anyway, okay. I'm rambling. Okay. I have some ice, sorry. If that bugs anybody. I know some people are weird about different sounds. Okay. This was a very interesting question. And I don't have a real like science-based answer, but I have some information. It says, hello, Katie. Can, dep- can depression alter your brain permanently? Even after a depressive episode is over, it feels as if my mental capacity is not the same as it used to be as though I've lost parts of myself along the way and have become more limited in many aspects of my life. Do we ever get back to being who we used to be? I love this question. And there's a couple of things that we do know through research, okay? Like I said, I don't have an answer directly for this. However, if you haven't looked up the term neuroplasticity, it's very important that you do because what that really means is you can teach an old dog new tricks. Our brain can change. It can be altered, meaning both things. Depression could have changed the layout of our brain and we can change it back. Ta-da! It's like brain magic. So 
the ways that we can change it back is potentially through medication. That's been beneficial for a lot of my clients who just couldn't get out of that slump or that like, oh, the lethargy that comes with depression. I'm so, they just can't, you know, it helps them pull out of that. Also, even just doing things, even if there's not enjoyment at the beginning, getting back into activities that we used to love can kind of start triggering that reward system in our brain, that part of our brain. Um, what is it called? It's the nucleus incumbens, I think is the part that's the reward center. You guys can Google check, double check that. But I think that's what it is. The incumbens um, is where it releases, you know, all those feel good things like dopamine is our main like reward center uh, chemical release. And we're like, oh, you feel good. It's exciting. And so we need to get that back. And depression usually means that even though those things might be released or being sent, they're not being received. A lot of it, that's why, um, not to get too nerdy, you guys, but like when we have medications, a lot of times they talk about like the synapse, meaning between two, it's, it's neurons, but I'm, I'm like, how do I make this easy to understand? It's like, that's why I talked about uh, like rolling marbles in the sand. Um, there's an old video. Okay, I'm getting to, let's start over. There's an old video I talk about schizophrenia and I think I talk about, it might be in relation to uh, maybe depression as well. But imagine our brain is a, a balloon that's filled with sand. I know that sounds weird, but you know those like little squeezy balloons like people use to like strengthen their hands and stuff? Imagine it's like a big one of those that you couldn't fit it in your hands. You'd have to hold it between two hands and your hands wouldn't even touch. It's like the size of your brain, roughly. When we have a, a thought and a reaction, right? So depression, for instance, means that when, instead of thinking, oh, I get to play volleyball, let's say, and I love volleyball and I feel happy and this like connection our brain releases reward our brain's like ooh, sends dopamine we feel good we love volleyball we got to play it so it rolls this marble between these two things volleyball reward center and it rolls a marble and triggers that over and over and as we all know when things roll in sand the rut of where it rolls gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper right depression does that in the same way that that like volleyball made us happy. It's rolling this depression's made a rut where it's like anything that we enjoy goes to like feeling shitty, feeling hopeless, super lethargic. I don't like anything. We have to pull that marble out. And so it takes a little bit of effort at the beginning when we're out of a depressive episode. Sure. We feel a little bit better, but we're going to have to push it a little bit farther. And that's where medication can come in. And as well as doing things that we used to enjoy knowing that we won't have that immediate feeling like we used to because our brain is a little bit different. It's been altered. We've been in a depressive episode for a while and it's going to take it a little bit to get out of it. But if we push it out of it and we keep using those coping skills, even though they're not quite as good as they used to be, they w- it will get better, okay? And also there's something interesting. And if you have some research, if you have like an article you want to link that talks about how the brain alters or how depression can alter the brain, please share that, okay? Because it's not something that I've like read about and it's just like easily accessible for me. However, I did read, because I'm, I'm working on a book about trauma. If you don't know, my second book will be coming out next year and it's all about trauma. And I learned um, Dr. Uh, Nadine Burke Harris. Um, she is the Surgeon General in California. Wonderful woman, has a TED Talk, beautiful. But she has looked at research where... Um, trauma, much probably like depression, doesn't alter our DNA. 
However, it does alter our, our epigenetics. Now, epigenetics, it's like she describes it as our DNA is like um, musical notes on sheet, like sheet music, right? Um, just like, let's say we're singing happy birthday and it comes with all these notes, right? Happy birthday to you. But the epigenetics is how we read that music. So that would be like any notations. Is that staccato? Is that a whole note? It's going to, it, what, like, what's the cleft? Not to get too musical for, for any of people who aren't very musical, but what, um, you know, like, what key is this in? What's the timing? All of that is the epigenetics. So epigenetics are like how uh, they're, they're going to decide how our DNA is read. So even if the DNA says everything is great and dandy, but our epigenetics are like, oh, we don't want to read that part. No, but read this twice. Read this like hypervigilance. Let's read that a lot. Mm-hmm. But we're going to ignore all this calming, soothing behavior. And so in essence, trauma can change the way that our DNA is read, making certain behaviors, certain um, genetic predispositions, uh, but, you know, brain development, physical like different parts of our body it can actually change the way that it's read meaning that certain things over time would like evolve to be like maybe if i was uh, had complex ptsd my child could have an enlarged amygdala just because of the way that the my epigenetics had read the dna and then produced a child you know i know that's like a very drastic thought but i'm just telling you that I believe that potentially, if if we're learning this about trauma, that maybe depression can alter our epigenetics, meaning that our DNA is read a little bit differently and it can change the way that our our DNA is interpreted. Is that clear? I know that's very sciencey and I'm trying to like make it make sense, but I really love the music, like the sheet music example that she gives. Um, I don't know if that's in her TED Talk or one of her articles, but she also has a book, The Deepest Well. It's really good. Um, So anyway... I love Dr. Nadine Burke She's great. Um, but for the person who's feels like depression's, you know, making it so that you're not what you used to be, just keep pushing. It's a new muscle. It's like the first time I did Pilates. I was like, what is this? And my body doesn't do that. I don't move like that. That muscle doesn't exist. It's a new muscle. We can, we can build it up. So just little by little, keep trying. Um, I promise it'll get better. And if you feel like you're drowning in the symptoms and the depressive episode, just keep hitting and hitting and hitting like wave after wave. Please talk to someone, uh, potentially look into medication and seeing a psychiatrist. Remember, I'm not a doctor, but a psychiatrist, a, uh, a regular doctor. I prefer a psychiatrist, at least someone who like specializes in mental health, like psychotropic medication the specialization i think is very important um but get in to see somebody and just be assessed to see what could potentially help you a little bit more okay on to question number five it says i just wanted to know if seeing a male therapist after not having any kind of relationships with men because of trauma is therapeutic in and of itself I know part of my therapy was to address my beliefs of how I see men or how I view myself and to work on healing from bullying that happened mostly from boys and grown men behaving inappropriately. While recalling my therapy sessions, I feel like it was a waste of my time and his because I struggled a lot talking to him. I felt I had nothing profound to say after a while. What I did get out of this was the fact that I needed to be exposed to what frightens me which is learning to be comfortable around men and building trust. I guess in a way, he was a good start. Thank you so much, Katie. I thought this question was interesting. Um, 
I've only heard the the reverse where many of my patients and viewers alike, you've told me that you would, are unable to be in therapy with um, a, a male or female based on trauma in the past. Like even one of my friends prefers to see men because her mom was super emotionally abusive. And so she, that's not a, like females aren't as safe for her to talk to. And she never really understood why until we were like talking a couple, probably like a year ago or more um, over lunch. And I was like, well, was your, what was your dad like or your mom? Or like, did you know, did you get bullied by girls in school or, you know, so we learned a lot about that. And we all have that. Like there's always a, in my first book, Are You Okay? I talk about picking the right therapist. And I'm like, now is not the time to be PC. I want you to pick someone that feels comfortable so that you can start growing and changing and being challenged and feel comfortable, right? Um, that's really important to feel comfortable. So when it comes to to this, there's I have two thoughts. Number one, yes, it could be therapeutic just seeing a male therapist after having trauma related to men. However, too much too fast isn't good for any of us. And for many of you and my patients, seeing a man is impossible. It means that you can't be honest. You already go into kind of like fight, flight, freeze potentially, like part of your stress response is already ignited. Some of my patients report already feeling anxious, um, even trying to see their doctor because a lot of, uh, unfortunately, a lot of doctors in my area are males and it's hard to find, you know, females that take insurance. And anyway, so sometimes I'll have to send my patients out to see someone and they're like, oh, do you have a female in the area? And, uh, you know, no go. It's hard. So while it can be therapeutic, it's all about timing. I don't think that we should be pushing ourselves from just out the gate. First thing, we shouldn't be pushing ourselves to see someone that we're not comfortable with. It could be something that we could do later. I would encourage in a more diffused area, like a group therapy could be super beneficial to see um, a male therapist in a group therapy setting. Because it's a little buffered, right? We have other people there with us, so that won't be so like potentially triggering and upsetting. Um, or like we see our first therapist. Sorry, I'm talking so much it makes me yawn. Oh. But we see our first therapist work on the trauma, and then maybe we go to see a guy like a male therapist later to try to work on building a healthy relationship with a man and understanding that men aren't always like your abusers. Right. And so I do think there is a therapeutic component to it. But I, in this case, it sounds like it might have been too much too fast because, again, we just have to be going at our own pace. We have to feel safe um, in sessions. We have to feel able to get be open and honest. Um, yeah, because you said you struggled a lot talking to him. And yes, therapy is hard, but it shouldn't be that hard. We don't want to add in any extra roadblocks. Right. And so, yeah. So those are my thoughts. Good. But also we don't want to like, you know, it can be too much. So anyway, that's, I think it's, it's good that you at least realize that and, and thought about it, you know, and it can be a little bit therapeutic, just maybe in the future, right? Okay. Question number six. Hi, Katie. Recently, I realized during therapy that I was emotionally, emotionally neglected since the age of six. I know my parents did what they could with the knowledge and skills that they had at the time. I struggled with feelings of guilt. How could I possibly think such horrible things about my parents? They fed me and provided a roof over my head. It wasn't that bad, right? Ugh, we always do this. I'm just shaking my head because it's so common that we're like, but they did everything good. I have a whole video on this and a book that I'll recommend. So hold on. Um, I mean, those... Th- 
I mean, there are kids who've had it way worse than me. Comparison, comparison, red flag. Ah. My parents just ignored, belittled, and belittled me. My mother had has a dissociative disorder and spilled all of her problems and stuff out to me and said that I had to fix her. Wow, no boundaries. Holy shit. What are some tips on how to deal with the guilt and thoughts that have no that I have no right to complain? Oh my god. Okay, emotional neglect is big. Unfortunately, it's very common. And I have a video called the emotionally uh is it like emo- the book is called the emotionally absent mother, but I think my my vid- I have a video about this. So if you just look up like emotionally absent mother and Katie Morton on YouTube, it should pop up. But the thing is tricky when we have, when we're emotionally neglected and we're not like physically abused, we even, people have trouble with emotional abuse, right? This is emotional abuse. And because we can't see it just like mental illness, because we can't see it and we can't see the broken bone or the bruises, there's nothing physical done to us. We question whether it's that bad. We question whether we're making it up. We question whether it's actually abuse or if something's really wrong or if if we're just like ungrateful pieces of shit like they tell us we are, right? So emotionally neglectful parents look good on paper. Heck, they can look like fucking amazing. They can, uh, we can be super wealthy. We can live in a very nice house, all the private schools. They've helped us get, um, get into school and paid for our tuition and maybe they've even helped us get our first home. Maybe... They connected us with someone who got us a great job. Maybe uh, everything we wanted as far as like clothing and other items, they purchased for us. But you know what? They weren't there for us when we needed. The thing that children need most isn't things. It's connection. It's support. It's what we call like a nurturing relationship in therapy. They always talk about these buffering, nurturing relationships. Um, that's what builds resiliency in children, which means even though shit happens, we still feel okay. And so... That is what's important. We needed them to uh, tend to our wound on our knee when we fell outside. We wanted them to listen while we cried and rub our back and tell us it's going to be okay. We wanted them to be our safe haven when we got bullied at school or got a bad grade on a test. We needed that and they weren't there. And that lack of, of emotional support and connection and that buffering, nurturing relationship can cause us to... Um, have eating disorder behavior because again the control self-injury but most importantly and most commonly is like depression or anxiety because not getting that support and not having someone like come when we cry and be there to help us can make us feel like we're not worth it that we're not seen that we're not lovable that we've done something wrong because children when not given full stories right i've talked about this on other i think probably on my friend christina p's podcast where my mom's at um but maybe other things too like when when children don't have a full story like if uh if you get yelled at and your parent doesn't come in later because parents should practice doing this by the way if you're a parent do this if you lose your shit because we're trust me we don't have our shit together either right we're just all doing our best so if we lose our shit on our kid and we overreact and they get upset the best thing we can do is come back to them once we're calmed down maybe half hour an hour later and tell them i mean they have to be old enough to understand so like little little bitty kids it can be really hard but once they're like let's say three four depends on the development of your child and how able they are to have conversations with you but you should go in and say something to the effect of i'm so sorry i yelled at you i had a really bad day and i took it out on you and that's wrong you did nothing wrong can i tell you what happened to me if you can 
it helps for children to have stories. They learn in narratives. I've talked about this before, but you know how kids will go out all day to school or with friends, or even if they just went on an outing to the park with like a friend of yours and then they bring them back to your house. Kids, they're like out of breath. And the, and we went to the, the, the park and the ducks, I saw ducks. And they, they just tell you this story. Usually it's like, I don't know why, but I feel like they always tell you when they're out of breath because they're just so excited. And they're always like running around still while they're telling you the story. So that's how they form memories because that's how we all form memories. We're all humans, right? That's how humans form memories and that's how we process. And so if children do not have that story or that narrative to tell themselves, they make it up. And what do we know the most about? Ourselves. So children blame themselves. And so I know I'm kind of getting off on a tangent, but I think it's really important for us to understand that if we don't give children the actual story, we just aren't there for them. We're going to internalize that and start to believe that something wrong with us. I did something. I am ridiculous. I am not lovable. I am bad. I'm wrong. That's why all abuse causes shame, but it's just so it definitely is caused by emotional neglect too. Like don't think it's just physical abuse. All abuse causes shame. And the shame spiral is like something's intrinsically wrong with me. Deep down inside of me, something's bad. I'm bad. I'm wrong. Um, And so anyway, okay, off on a tangent. Please tell your children full stories of things. Apologize when you get upset and overreact. Explain to them emotions and how you felt it and what happened so that they can learn from you, so that they can develop healthy understandings of their emotions. Like it's it's really cool. One of my friends, um, she's a therapist also, which probably helps, but one of her children, her oldest is four, I think, four and a half now. He's so emotionally intelligent because she works with him a lot that he'll do his breathing and say like, I just felt angry. He'll come back and apologize. I'm sorry. I I yelled, mama. I just was angry and he can identify and it's beautiful. And I'm always like, oh, he's just so cute. He's going to be so emotionally intelligent. I'm so excited. And so we should try to cultivate that in children. We should speak to them. They're little humans. They're not... all the time I feel like we've heard that oh kids just just don't understand and you should pretend everything's okay and don't don't fight in front of them you're gonna upset them yes life is fucking upsetting but tell them what's going on explain it to them don't try to hide it children know all the shit and as they get older they only know more and walls are thin and they can hear shit so don't don't kid yourself thinking that you're keeping it from them. If you're having a hard time and you're crying in your bedroom your child probably knows so just talk to them let them know you know, mom or dad, I'm, I'm, daddy's having a hard time. I've been, you know, work has been hard. Sometimes life is hard. That's okay. You're not going to give them depression or make things worse for them. You're actually going to make it better because they're going to understand. Um, okay, sorry, got off on a tangent, but that's something I'm very passionate about. Now, this question is talking about being emotionally neglected. And I just want you to know how how hurtful that is for children. And that's kind of where I got off on that tangent. Um, and so, our parents, and I says so I know my parents did what they could with the knowledge and skills they had at the time. That's kind of like our parents did the best they could. That doesn't mean it's good enough. There's no excuse. Doesn't mean it's good enough. Sure, we can we can uh, forgive our parents for their ignorance, right? Like Sean and I were just talking about this the other night. Like both of our parents had us at very young ages, and I'm like, oh my god, not like, but my mom had me at like twenty, maybe twenty four, twenty three. But, you know, like we just figure it out as we go along, right? Like nobody has our shit together. Nobody knows, but you can educate yourself. Sure, they didn't know everything. So I just, I want to validate the thought that, I want to validate your feelings of my parents sucked at this and didn't do a very good job. That's completely okay. 
We have tools now to educate ourselves. So sure, they did the best they could, but that doesn't mean that was good enough. Um, and struggling with feelings of guilt comes out of that shame and that abuse that um, that you sustained. And how could I possibly think such horrible things about my parents? You're not thinking horrible things about your parents. They did horrible things to you, and you're trying to figure it out and process it. Just trying to reframe this. Because I think a lot of times we we think these thoughts and believe them as facts, meaning what your belief might be is that I'm thinking horrible things about my parents. I don't agree with that. You are trying to process the emotional abuse you sustained as a child and you know that your parents are were the catalysts or the to blame for that and fed you and provided a roof over your head whoop-de-fucking-do um it wasn't that bad right well obviously it was you know um and then there are the kids that have it way worse than me we cannot compare our experience to someone else's everyone's upset and feelings and uh, everyone's experience is valid, good, bad, indifferent. Just because I have a bad time doesn't mean a child who um, who maybe had like more money growing up than their parents could pay for their college because my parents couldn't. That doesn't mean that they like don't have a right to feel upset just because I had it worse. Do you know what I mean? It just does think about it logically. That doesn't even fucking make any sense. So consider that. And my parents just ignored and belittled me. And that erodes at who we are, our sense of self, our confidence, and can make it really difficult for us to do anything positive for ourselves and think positively about ourselves. Um, what are some tips? So the real question, what are some tips on how to deal with the guilt and thoughts that I have no right to complain? I think we just have to notice the thoughts that we have about it. <clears throat> like the, it wasn't that bad. And I want you to reframe it. I want you to imagine maybe, maybe this will help. I want you to, first of all, talk about it in therapy, please, please. But also I want you to imagine that this is your best friend that went through it and you're looking in on his or her life from the outside. What would you think about that? What would you say? Do you think they don't have a right to feel bad, to complain? Or do you think what happened to them was really hurtful and terrible? Sometimes when we remove ourselves just one person out, we're able to see things more clearly. Also, I would pick up The Emotionally Absent Mother. That's the book. It's Lori is the author, L-O-R-I. I forget her last name um, off the top of my head. It's on my bookcase over there. But anyway, The Emotionally Absent Mother. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. She offers like good mother messages and things that you can give to yourself. I think some of the work that you might want to do will have to do with um, like inner child work, writing letters from the adult you to the child you. Um, anyway, <clears throat> yeah, how you feel is valid. Your parents ignoring and belittling you is a big fucking deal. And it really, it, it takes us time to heal that and to be able to give ourselves the compassion, the understanding that we needed from our parents. Remember, we need that nurturing. That doesn't make you crazy. That's a basic human need. We are primed for connection from the moment that we're born. And the fact that they didn't give you that instead left you with these feelings that maybe you did something that was wrong or that something's wrong with you, that shame spiral that I'm talking about. And so just because other kids have it worse doesn't make your feelings or your upset any less than it makes it, you know, just as equal. It's just the same. We're all in it. We're all valid. All, everything, everyone deserves help and support. Um, so yeah, the the tips would be track your thoughts, Try to use those bridge statements to turn those negative, uh, I don't even know, I guess it's just like putting yourself down thoughts, any of that like 
lack of confidence and and I'm not good enough and I, is it really that bad? You know, all of those, I want you to try to make bridge statements into more positive ones. I want you to remove yourself from it. Imagine you're your friend looking in on it and challenge those thoughts that way. Maybe do some inner child work, writing letters back and forth from childlike you when you were at age of six, um, since age of six. So what about six, seven, eight, nine, ten year old you? Can we write back and forth from, from that one? Um, and then checking out that book, Emotionally Absent Mother. I think that will really, really help. Um, it does get better. I know I've been like doom and gloom in this question, but I'm like deep in trauma reading and and writing and that whole uh, emotional abuse not being as big of a deal is just bullshit. I know that that's what our brain tells us, but it's wrong and we have to fight back um, and we need to stop, break the cycle because my next chapter is all about like uh, transgenerational trauma. We need to break that fucking cycle. We need to talk to our kids about feelings and express, after we get mad, we need to explain what, what that was and or if we're crying, like tell them why. Children will assume that they did something wrong or something's wrong with them and we don't want that story being the one that continues to be passed on. We want the story of emotions are okay. We all feel them. We can talk about them and then we can move on. Um, yeah, okay. Question number seven. Hi, Katie. If somebody is feeling like they don't deserve help or feels extremely tired of trying to fight and therefore distances themselves from their therapist and maybe begins to miss appointments and calls, why does the therapist just have to allow this to happen? Shouldn't they receive more help? I'm very curious as this is something that's going on for me right now, but it hasn't been something that I'm purposefully doing. My therapist told me um, if I was to push her away, she'd have to allow me to do so. This was very confusing to me and had me wondering why. There's a couple of thoughts about it. There's resistance in therapy, we call it, which is when people, they could lie, show up late. I have it mainly, I don't see children much anymore, but back in the day I saw kids um, and parents have a lot of resistance. They, I've even had parents just stop bringing their children in altogether because frankly, because they were the fucking problem and they weren't willing to admit it. Um, not that I said that to them like that. Don't worry. I'm very professional. Um, but I had homework for them to do and they didn't want to do it. Right. It's the child, the child's the problem. Oh, so frustrating. They're like, I don't know why they're acting out. They're like 10 years old. I don't know why. You don't, you want to know why? Cause of you. Um, anyways, there's resistance and we are supposed to call it out or at least this was my training. We are supposed to call it out, acknowledge it, talk about it, try to figure out why it's happening. Right. Therapy is all about being curious. So I'm very curious with my patients. Like, how come, you know, you've, I noticed you've been late uh, lately. Would you like to move your appointment to a later time? Or is, is this some, is it just difficult for you to come here? You know, you'll be surprised what comes up. A lot of times if it's full resistance, they'll be like, no, no, no. And then I've had patients just stop showing up and then, you know, just without even telling me. And then you have to hound them for payment and you have to try to talk to them to make sure that everything's okay. Make sure that, you know nothing bad happened. Um, but we can't, the reason that therapist kind of has to let someone push them away is because as a therapist, I can't work harder than my patients. And I know that's really difficult for people to understand. I'm actually working on a video about things that I wish, uh, people understood about therapists and maybe I'll add that in. Um, let me write that. Okay. Got that note. Because the reason that we can't work harder than our patients is because they, it's, it's you that has to do the hard work as the patient, right? I've been in my own therapy off and on for years. Um, I'm actually missing it right now and should get back in, but it's hard with the coronavirus. Um, <clears throat> but 
I have to do the work. I'm the one making the changes. It's my life as a patient that needs to change. It's my shit that's bothering me. And I came in to get help. Okay. Just think about that for a second. I'm the one that has to actually do the work in my life. All a therapist can do is offer resources and tools, listen, validate. Um, that's really it, right? I know that's a lot, but that's our side. We're towing our our side, right? We're cleaning our side of the road or towing our, I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but it's like, we're responsible for that. You as the patient are responsible for all the other work. And that's why if you just decide to stop coming, don't want to show up, you miss appointments and calls, you don't call back, we can't force you to see us. We can't. What good is that going to do? We can't work harder than you because you have to actually put in the work. And if you don't even want to show up, where does that leave us? Do you see what I mean? And so that's why, like, I was just writing in my book about a story where a patient just stopped coming in. And um, we can't, you can call a couple of times, and then it's like boundaries. I'm not your parent. I'm not going to show up at your house and drag you out and make you come to appointments or do that thing I told you to do, right? That's not my job. My job is to offer resources, and then you have to buck up and do it. And it's, if you're not ready to do that, then therapy is not going to work for you right now. And I know this is not, this is like tough love, Katie, right now, but it's the truth. I've had it happen too many times. And I know it's confusing because you're like, but I come to a therapist for help. Emphasis on the going part, the getting to therapy, the coming to a therapist. You have to get there. We can't make you get there. That's out of our scope. So I know it's hard to understand, but that's where the line is. A lot of it has to do with healthy boundaries and ethics and therapy and the fact that at the bare bones of it, we cannot work harder than our patients because that only crosses boundaries and puts a strain on the relationship, the therapeutic relationship. And honestly, in many ways, deems the therapist kind of like uh, ineffective because if I'm trying to check in on you and do all these things, then you don't have the ability to try it on your own, to build your own confidence and strength, which is the whole goal. And it really means that maybe you need a higher level of care. If you need more than I can give you on an outpatient basis, you probably need to see somebody more frequently or you need to live in the prop, like be in an IOP or PHP. If you're wondering what all those things are, it's in my book, Are You Okay? But it's just different levels of treatment, meaning it's a day program where you're there most of the day or you live in a facility or you stay, you know, seven hours a day. There's all sorts of things. But outpatient is just coming to see me for an hour or maybe two a week and then you go about your life, right? Maybe you need a higher level of care. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of, that's what it is. And when a, a therapist should check in, like I always check in with my patients, see what's going on, but not always. Like after that first one or two check-ins, I can't make you, you know, you have to be responsible. Like I had this patient years ago who just stopped coming all of a sudden. I know I've, there's a lot of them, you guys, <laughs> happens all the time. And um, I contacted her and her mom because they would come in together a lot. Um, never call me back. And then all of a sudden the mom just said, uh, uh, where should I send the check or can I PayPal you or whatever? Just paid me for the session. She mentioned said, let's just cancel them from now on. And I was like, okay, is everything okay? And she's like, yeah, everything's okay. And I'm like, can I talk to my client? You know, and she was like, sure. And then put her on the phone for two minutes. And that was the last I ever heard of them, uh, heard from them. So I'm not going to keep calling. How, what good is that going to do? Um, okay. I know I'm, I'm rambling. Question number eight. 
Hey, Katie, my therapist hasn't given me a diagnosis yet, and it makes me wonder if maybe I don't really have anything going on to be diagnosed. I don't know how to approach this topic with her either. I don't want to seem like my issues are bigger than they are or that I'm just trying to label it for attention. Thanks a lot. Hope you're doing well. I love this question. And the the real answer is a diagnosis is more than just a label or doing it. And we don't do it for attention, right? The way I would approach this with your therapist is to bring it up and say, hey, I know that I have a lot of different weird symptoms going on. I don't know if you think that's a diagnosable thing or not, but it would help for me to at least have some words to put to what I'm feeling. Diagnoses in a lot of ways can be valid, validating, right? Gives us a word to describe all that's going on. And so there's nothing wrong with asking. That doesn't make you attention seeking. That just means you want to know. It'd be like going to the doctor and they're like, okay, so I gave you a prescription, go pick it up at the pharmacy. And you're like, whoa, 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 what's the prescription for? And they're like, don't worry about it. Forget about it. And you're like, but I think I am, do I have strep throat, the flu? Oh, don't worry. Just go get the prescription, take it for five days. You'd be like, are you fucking serious? And mental health should be no different. So just ask, you know, it's okay to ask. You can say like, hey, is there a certain diagnosis that you think I have? I, I, it would be really validating for me to be able to do more research and reading about a thing like that. Like if I knew it was major depressive disorder, then I could read about major depressive disorder and I could feel more informed. There's so many reasons that it's helpful. So I would just try to frame it in that way and bring it up. Bring it up, but you, you'd like to have a word to put to all your symptoms. You don't know if what you have is actually something that is diagnosable, but if so, you'd like to learn more about it. Um, do they have any workbooks? You'd like, you know, you'd like to be more educated and more informed. Um, it's your diagnosis. It's your treatment. You have every right to know everything about it. I think in mental health stuff, we just, I don't know. And some people are weird. Some therapists are like, oh, I don't believe in diagnosis. I don't care. What do, you, what do you think I'm struggling with? Are there certain workbooks I could pick up? You should ask about that. That's okay. So if they give pushback, and like, oh, I don't really like to diagnose. Be like, I get it. But what, what would you think? Because I really want to learn more. I want to get some workbooks. I want to be educated. Um, and hopefully they'll help you with that. Okay. Question number nine. Huge struggle. Um, oh, it's a huge struggle I have, and I really hope it gets in the video. Surprise, it's in the video. How can I know if I'm really suicidal or just feel hopeless that uh, that day and not wanting to live? When I have a bad day, anxiety, eating disorder, depression, I think about suicide and not wanting to live. Other days, it's, it's just there, but with better coping. How do I know if I really want to die? And does this make sense? It totally makes sense. But feeling hopeless and not wanting to live is suicidal thoughts. I want you to know that's all you're talking about the same thing. Not wanting to be around, not wanting to live. Those are just passive suicidal thoughts. Something that I don't think we've talked enough about are like, we can all have these thoughts um, about like death and dying and it can be intrusive thoughts. I've talked about those where like all of a sudden we'll have these thoughts like I could just jump off this bridge or kill myself. We'll have those kinds of thoughts. Those are not the same as suicidal thoughts. So suicidal thoughts, passive or active, right? So we can have, um, I call it suicidal ideation. So there's, I know there's a bunch of different terms, but let me try to define them. So passive suicidal thoughts may be what you're talking about when you say like, I just like some days, you know, it's just there, but with better coping. So it's like those thoughts are around, but I don't have any plan and I don't have the means maybe nearby and I'm not going to do it. The threat is not imminent, right? I'm not going to try to take my life today. Okay. Passive thoughts. Those can kind of even flutter by. We're like just doing my thing. And then all of a sudden my brain's like, maybe you should kill yourself. I'm like, nah. And I just keep doing that's passive. And that's kind of like 
Then we move into the next, which, and I don't know if everybody would agree that these are the stages, but this is how I've experienced with my patients. You feel free to disagree in the comments. But then we'd move into what I would call like suicidal ideation, which is when we start to like really try to put a plan together or we try to, we think about it more. Like we we let the suicidal thoughts take up more space in our brain versus those passive like fluttering by, right? We let it sit in there and we think about it. And maybe we're like, we start stockpiling pills or we start doing something. Um, And sorry if that's triggering to anyone. I won't talk any more in detail about stuff like that. But we start thinking about it more. Then there's active, where we are preparing the, the active suicidal thoughts. We're making preparations. We're setting a date. We're trying to um, put all of our, get all of our things in order, pay our bills. Usually people who are considering suicide will like pay their bills. Maybe they'll uh, refoster their dog or cat or something. There's stuff that we do to like take care of the business before we do it. And so there are these different buckets. And I'm sure you could even say it's like a whole spectrum, right? It's not just these three buckets. It's a whole spectrum. But I just want you to kind of know the difference, okay? Active is what, as a therapist, scares the shit out of me and makes me have to check in on you every day and potentially put you in the hospital to keep you safe or have a parent check in on you. That's when I get scared, when they, the threat is imminent, meaning that they you could take your life at any time. You have the means. You have a plan. You know, there's all these things we have to look out for. And so I think... What you're struggling with right now is is like suicidal ideation and then then passive suicidal thoughts. You're kind of toggling between the two. I would tell someone about this. I think it's really important that we talk about this because this is the early stage. And if it doesn't get taken care of, it can move into more active suicidal thoughts, which is what I don't want to have happen because it can get better. But suicide and depression, like those thoughts, ooh, I just hit my microphone, sorry. Those thoughts kind of, do you know when you... Um, when you feel like you're going to pass out, if we've ever felt like this for different reasons, as a kid, it's like, I remember um, like spinning around and then, oh, you feel like dizzy and things get crazy and it feels like it gets dark from the sides. That's what suicidal thoughts and depression do to our hope, just blacks it out, makes it so we can't see everything. And so when we feel hopeless, like there's no end in sight, nothing's going to get better. That's because it won't allow us to see that. It won't allow us to see that little light in the side, that little spark of hope, of uh, a better future, of feeling better. And so please talk to someone. Medication could help. Therapy could help. There's a lot of things that we could do to help you feel better, get you some support. Um, but yeah, I I think that that is really, um, that's really what's happening. And how do you know if you really want to die? It's it's not really wanting to. It's feeling like we don't have any other options. I think a lot of people feel like suicide in a way is like a, a it is a choice that people make, but the choice is made without feeling like there's any other choice. You know, if someone's like, do you want paper or paper? When you go to the grocery store for bags, you're like, well, I guess paper. Like it can feel like that. There's no other option. But with proper support and understanding and having someone listen to you, feeling validated, maybe some medication, getting that on board, doing some things to take care of yourself, I promise you those blinders will start to come off and be able to see that although today might be shitty or this moment might feel like the fucking worst, things can and will get better. I know it's hard. I know that people, you know, it's a real difficult thing for a lot of people to see out of it, but just trust me, I've seen it happen. I know it can. I've heard from many of you over the years that it does get better. So just keep that in mind, speak up, reach out and get some help. Okay. Question number 10. Why does no one like shy people? This question surprised me. 
And why do honest and kind people get exploited or ignored? And those with a certain ego and the ability to sell and present themselves get rewarded. I like shy people. I don't dislike shy people. And I don't want anybody to believe that that is true. But to answer the question is that squeaky wheel gets the grease. Have you guys heard that? If you make a lot of fucking noise, you're going to get attention. You're going to get what you want. People just don't like to be, what's the word? Don't like to be inconvenienced. Like recently I had a viewer reach out and she's a teacher and they're, so she has uh, more seniority in the job. She's been working as a teacher for more years, her and this other woman, the other woman's even more senior than her. And they were getting this short end of the stick, having to teach all these different classes where I didn't realize teachers, they'll prepare one class and hopefully they'll get to teach that class like two or three times. So they don't have to prepare all seven classes, let's say all different classes it allows them to focus in more on certain topics, which makes sense in my school. Cause like my science teacher only taught like two science classes. They, they taught them all day long, you know, those over and over. So she was having a tough time because she's like, I shouldn't have to do this. This new girl who's really pushy and loud is getting easy. She's only teaching two things and I'm teaching four. And so is this other lady who has more seniority than the both of us. And I was like, cause she's loud and your boss probably thinks she's a pain in the ass and doesn't want to deal with this. He's like, just shut up. I'll do whatever. Just shut up. So we have to be that squeaky wheel in order to get the grease. So we have to speak up and shy people and honest and kind people We'll let people go first, right? Oh, no, no, you, it's okay. It's fine. We're, we don't have a problem being second or being last, but that can really mean that we don't get rewarded. We don't get um, raises when we should. We don't get promotions when we should. Um, we have to speak up. And I know it's uncomfortable, but I would encourage all of you to practice. That's why I always say, write out what you want to say. Practice it in front of a mirror. Um over and over and over until you feel like you could say it in your sleep and then go in and do the thing. Just because we aren't comfortable doing it doesn't mean we can't. I don't want you to think that just being shy or backwards or quiet means that we can't get our needs met because we can. Other people just give no fucks and are loud and don't and are confident and don't mind uh, putting other people out. But then there's people like us who makes us a little, oh, I don't like it and I don't want, what, oh, it's stressful for them. Like, I'll deal with it. No. We all have a right to be heard. And so it's not that people don't like shy people. I think that we, A, we might not give them a chance to get to know us because we're quiet. It can take a lot longer and we can be kind of standoffish. But second, to answer the other part about like get exploited and then other and ignored and certain people with a certain type of ego, you know, present themselves better and get more rewarded. Let's change that. We have the ability. It just takes a little bit more effort on our part because we have to kind of prepare ahead what we want to say. I used to prepare every time I'd go in for my, I don't know if, it, I think it was biannually. It could have been annually, but either way, I'd go in for my review with my boss and I would prepare, I would prepare ahead of time. Other people just go in and be like, I deserve a raise and da, 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 da. here's why. No, I had to find, I'd be like, oh, here are examples of things I've done well. I'd write it down. I'd bring it in and I'd just read from it. I'd be like, so this year I think has been good. I've done da, 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 da. And so therefore I believe that I deserve a raise or I want um, more, you know, you'd negotiate more vacation time, whatever they could offer you. Um, prepare ahead. It's okay. A lot of us have to do it, but we have to be the squeaky wheels. Otherwise we get completely ignored. Okay. Question number 11. We only have two more questions left, you guys. This one and the 12th one. 
Question 11. What to do when you already had a lot of therapy and you would get along with yourself a lot better, but you're still unable to get your life in order, which then prevents you from finally breaking free of all the mental issues that you fall back into again and again? If that even makes sense. That makes sense. I feel so helpless and hopeless. Seems therapy only helps with the issues inside, but not the issues outside. That's interesting. Therapy should help with both. I think I would, for this person, since it sounds like you're, you're in therapy or you've had a lot of therapy, understanding what's going on inside is only half of the puzzle, right? Because then we have to go out into the world and we have to make change or do things differently. And this could mean, like for me, it's been like, as I'm doing work on myself, like being okay, being seen and heard and not being taken advantage of, that means that some of my relationships don't exist anymore. Friendships I've let go of. People I've had to not tell off, but tell that I don't want them in my life. It's not worth my energy. And that's because I don't have that to give and I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing those behaviors and that's outside. But I had to understand what I was doing and why it was happening for me first. So it's awesome because that inside work is really fucking hard. So I'm glad you've done it. The outside work is really hard too. But now that we have the understanding and hopefully some empathy and compassion for yourself, then we can go outside and we can try to make change. So I would tell your therapist that you want more homework involving things in your life outside of your internal dialogue and thought processes and all that stuff. We want more to-dos for outside things. That could be conversations and relationships that we need to have, ways like, for instance, some of my patients with social anxiety, I'm like, I want you to make eye contact with two people um, this week. And I want you to smile at one stranger. And I want you to say good morning to one other stranger. And that's your homework. And those are outside things. Yeah, sure. We're dealing with the inside, but it's kind of like part of that, like exposure. Okay. Nothing bad's going to happen. I promise I'm not in their way. You know, we have to do those things. So tell your therapist because I want you to know that things can and will get better. That helpless and hopeless place is really uncomfortable. And I'm sorry that you're feeling that way. But just ask for more of that outside work so that you feel like things in your life are really starting to move in the right direction. Um, Also, if you don't have a therapist or you're looking for more of, um, you know, more things in the outs, like more help for outside and you're not currently seeing a therapist, social workers help you get things together. Like one of my friends, Rocio, who I've had on the channel years ago, she does a lot of this work where she comes to your house and she meets with you and she tries to make sure that you're getting all the resources, whether that is some um, financial assistance from the government. She gets all that in order for you. Make sure you know the paperwork you need to fill out, how to do it, all that stuff. Maybe you need someone to take you to and from your appointments, or maybe you're needing to find a new apartment. She helps with that stuff. So social workers and occupational therapists, different types of like professionals can help with that stuff more actively. Whereas a therapist will give you like homework, like behavioral homework. So kind of depending on what you're needing, hopefully that gives you an idea of like other things to look into. Um, And if any of you who are listening to this or watching this know of other resources and other professionals that help with that outside stuff, will you let us know in the comments? Cause that could be really beneficial. Um, But yeah, you'll get there. You got this. And final question. Question number 12. Hi, Katie. I've been seeing a therapist and feel like I overshare. And then when I'm out of her office, I regret everything I say. I don't know. I don't even mean to giggle at this because I know it's very uncomfortable. It's just funny because therapy is the one place you don't have to worry about oversharing. But because you're having this, like, I call it a vulnerability hangover. I think I stole that from Brené Brown, I would assume, because she talks about shame and vulnerability a lot. I'm not sure. Maybe I read her stuff and then I don't know. Anyway, but it's a vulnerability hangover. I feel that, like I made that video a 
crying because coronavirus is super stressful and I still have wanted to make more, but I'm like, no, no, no. Cause I had a vulnerability hangover. I couldn't deal. I hated that I shared so much and I felt really ugh, open and uh, uncomfortable. And that's very normal. When we share a lot, we feel uncomfortable. We're like, wow, I really let them in. That was a little too much too fast. Should have slowed that down. I'm uncomfortable. And then we regret it, right? And we spiral into like, oh my God, I can't believe I told them this. Oh my God, oh my God, what are they going to think? And we go in a shame spiral, okay? So what do we do? I would bring this up in therapy. I think it's great in therapy to be vulnerable, but we have to manage this hangover that you're experiencing. The, the ramifications of you being open and honest is making you feel horrible. It, it's, it's terrible. And it's, and so we need to figure out ways to deal with that. And so talk to your therapist, because some of the tips that I would have are things like, uh, obviously bringing it up in therapy and then recognizing maybe before you go into your next appointment, what are the things that you are, you feel the most upset about afterwards? Are these things relating to a certain relationship? Are these things relating to like past traumas? What are the things that are causing you to feel too vulnerable? And then we have to let our therapist know that, hey, these kind of topics, I don't think I'm quite ready. I know I've shared, but then I feel terrible afterwards. You can put that out there. Okay. That's one of the ways we could manage. Um, and that kind of, we probably already have enough information based on doing this already that we can hopefully, you know, figure out some topics to kind of steer away from for the time being. Um, and then talking with your therapist about it. And maybe another thing, I'd be very curious if I was your therapist, I'd be very curious about what's happened in therapy for you in the past, like, um, or in relationships. Have you shared a lot with someone and then had it backfire? Has someone like shared your other, like things that you thought were private publicly? I don't know. I'd be very curious as to to where this hangover is coming from. For me, it was more because I didn't I didn't know how it'd be received, and I wasn't feeling very good, and so I couldn't. I knew that I could not weather people shit talking online to me. I couldn't deal with any hate comments. That's what I knew. So I was scared, and I felt too vulnerable because I was like, "Ooh, I put too much out there, and I don't like it being out there." So consider what that is for you. Um, cause I can give you some information and help you be a little bit more cognizant and careful as you move forward. Um, but I think it's really good to share in therapy and I'm glad that you're doing it and hopefully you're getting, you'll get more out of it as you feel kind of like more in control of it. And like, it's, yeah, I don't know. Anyways, I hope that that helps. I hope all that helps. You guys have such great questions. Um, I always find it just very, very interesting, very, uh, great to see where you guys are at. And a lot of the things are things that I've worked on personally. I don't want you to think just because I'm a therapist that I always do, do better. I just usually know better, which is not always, the, you know, sometimes it makes it worse. Um, but anyways, I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week. If you, again, if you want to send in a question, I usually ask on Mondays or Tuesdays on the community tab of the Opinions That Don't Matter YouTube channel. You can swing over there and subscribe and turn your notifications on for the community posts. Sean and I usually post and not that often, you guys, maybe like three, four times a week. So you won't be getting like ping, 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 ping all day long. Like we don't have that much to say. Our life's not that exciting. Um, I hope you and yours are safe and healthy and happy during this very difficult time. Um, I'm thinking of all of you. Thank you so much for listening and watching. And I will see you next week. Bye. Ask about your therapist or vent about your work. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted.
Okay.